Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my backyard is currently weed-free. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I just enrolled in coursework for a doctorate in educational psychology. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today, we are drinking Warsteiner Dunkel. I'm excited to finally be getting around to this. I've had this in the fridge for several months now, and this was an original recommendation when we first announced this show a year ago from one of my former students, and so I'm really excited to let him know that I have finally put this on the air. So this month's primary segment, I, uh, I had a chance to travel down to Texas to do um, a professional development event with uh, the UTeach program and all of the replication sites from around the country where we got together and talked about best practices associated with teacher preparation programs. And during that process, they had a poster session where uh, students and faculty and anybody who may be interested had an opportunity to share all of the work that they've been doing uh, on some particular topic. And during that session, I was really excited to get to stop and chat with a couple of FSU students who did some really interesting work uh, that I wanted to hear more about. And so honestly, just standing there uh, in the middle of that poster session, I was like, hey, you want to come come on the podcast and tell me more about it? And they uh, foolishly were like, yeah, totally, we're going to do that. And so we <laughs> have them on the show to, to chat with us about the work that they're doing down in Florida. Uh, so let me introduce you to, so we have Caroline Herbster is entering her senior year at Florida State University where she is a pre-service secondary mathematics teacher in the FSU Teach program. She began undergraduate research on responsive teaching during her sophomore year of college, exploring the tensions and affordances of taking up the approach. Caroline hopes to teach middle school math and looks forward to implementing these pre-service experiences and research findings in future classrooms. We also have Jacob Truitt, who is a rising senior at Florida State University in the FSU Teach program, where he is currently pursuing degrees in education and biology. In his hopes to one day work with curriculum design and development, he first dove into undergraduate research with Caroline Herbster and Dr. Lama Jabber by looking at the affordances and tensions that are inherent to responsive teaching. He is looking forward to implementing the strategies he has learned, not only in developing curriculum, but in his own middle school science classroom. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So why don't you just give us the short version? Imagine that we are once again walking around in the in the poster the poster session, and uh, a couple of us come ambling up, and uh, we're like, "Hey, what's uh, what's going on in your poster?" So tell us about what do you know about responsive teaching? Sure. Um, so responsive teaching is a strategy that really kind of flips that traditional style we often see in classrooms. So instead of teachers taking content and directly giving it to the students, directly teaching them, I like to say that responsive teaching kind of flips that so that we focus on the students, we listen to their ideas, their perspectives, their backgrounds, and what they bring to the classroom, classroom, excuse me, and really open up the um, open up the room for that discourse that that focuses on the students and, and allows them to really be the sense makers and drive the uh, content instruction. Something else that's really, really important when it comes to responsive teaching is the fact that it really engages all students, no matter if they feel represented in a traditional STEM classroom or really any classroom 
or if they don't feel represented in that classroom because it is taking the students' ideas and using them to foreground the entire lesson. No matter what their background is, they always have a voice and always have a reason and way to get into the conversation. So give us a little bit of context because you're both pre-service teachers, right? So what's a, what was the nature of the actual work that you were doing since you're both uh, yet to be in your own classrooms? Good question. So, yes, we um, were part of the FSU Teach program at Florida State University. So for those who aren't familiar with the UTeach style, we are both pursuing two degrees. I'm focusing, my primary degree is in mathematics. Jake's primary degree is in biology. Um, and then our other degree is in education through this FSU Teach program. Our classes are really focused on, on STEM education, student-centered teaching, and smaller courses that allow us to explore those instructional pathways. In FSU Teach, uh, one of the courses that really opened our eyes to responsive teaching was knowing and learning. And in the Knowing and Learning course, a lot of our assignments that we did, we would watch videos of responsive classrooms or, or not, not necessarily uh, responsive teaching classrooms, but math and science classrooms where these students are engaging in, in discourse about the subject and having very eye-opening conversations where they're able to talk about certain topics without necessarily having right or wrong answers. That's one of the things that I think responsive teaching really allows for and illuminates um, is opening up that classroom to all students' voices with and, and within that, making sure that the students have an agency in that, that they don't feel ever feel like they are being put down for ideas that they're bringing to the classroom or to the table. As I was saying, we were really open to responsive teaching within this course, Knowing and Learning. But in Knowing and Learning, we were focusing more on the student's perspective of things, trying to, as teachers, as pre-service teachers, trying to put ourselves in the perspective of students to better understand how we might ask questions or write lessons. And so from there, Jake and I really were interested in what's going on at the teacher level of this. You know, we've consistently put ourselves in the student's perspective, trying to understand their prior knowledge or, um, you know, pre or misconceptions or even their cultural backgrounds and, and how that affects their perspective on a, on a topic in the classroom. But then we were curious as to, well, how are the teachers taking this up and, and what are they feeling on their, their side? So that was really what motivated our research and then we were able to do um, an independent study with Dr. Lama Jabber where we worked with her with research and data collection that she had already done from a professional development but we were analyzing videos for the most part in which we were looking more at the teachers than the students. Uh, so in this story that you're telling us we, we've talked a couple of times about the importance of getting each other's classrooms seeing other people practice their profession and then taking lessons for ourselves and feeding back to others so uh, can you tell us a little more about the, the teachers you were watching in the videos yeah that's an awesome question the context of our research was in 12 upper elementary and middle school science classrooms and all the teachers that we watched were what we would consider veteran teachers with about 10 plus years of experience each. And each of them had never been exposed to responsive teaching before this professional development course. It was a three-part course. In the first one, the teachers themselves got to experience responsive teaching as students. So they sat back and they were asked these open-ended questions and felt that discomfort with just having their ideas out in the open. 
Moving into the second course, the teachers were then asked to implement their own responsive teaching in their classroom. And that was where most of our data collection came from because we would watch these videos and get that kind of uh, like spectator eye into these awesome classrooms full of this rich discussion that brought about all these tensions that really spurred all of our research. Watching these classrooms, it was really cool to see that these veteran teachers who have been in the classroom for so long were struggling with the same things that we as pre-service teachers were struggling with. Even as these teachers with so much experience and understanding how to teach and going through class after class after class and also being taught responsive teaching, they too struggled, which is always really good and comforting to feel because sometimes you feel like you're going through this all alone. But no matter what your level of expertise is, there's always going to be a level of discomfort with something new. And having never been taught responsibly necessarily, it's really cool to see the difference that arises in each classroom because each of the classrooms that we got to see was very different in, in the way that they approached responsive teaching in the way that they took up responsive teaching and the way that the class received their the responsive effect of it and so having that spectator eye to where we weren't the ones being uncomfortable and we weren't the awkward ones uh, in front of the classroom trying to get these students to have these ideas and put them out in the world was really cool because it just solidified the feelings we have but also emphasized how good these tensions were for us to be feeling and how this awkwardness really propels students to think more in depth and create these better ideas and these stories within their own heads. When we went into this research, tensions wasn't our, like what we were going after. We went into this research very open-minded and Dr. Lama Jaber was just like, here's these videos, help me analyze them. And as we watched the videos, we took notes every week. Uh, we met up in person, we talked, and over time we started to realize that tensions were like tension amongst the class, amongst the teacher. We noticed that all of these tensions were something that we all commonly noticed. And so that is what eventually led our research to focus on tension. Tell us a little bit, about, uh, give us an operational definition of tension. What are we talking about when we say tension? Tension is the word that we use for any kind of decision moment. The, the tension is not necessarily the, um, I don't know how to, how to word what I want to say. The tension. We always is, struggled with defining this. Yeah. So the, That's fine. The, you mentioned the, like showing the struggle is valuable in watching these veteran teachers as a fledgling. I think the same is true of this conversation. It doesn't have to be clean and crisp. Like this isn't a press release. Right. So we can talk Absolutely. about it. It's all right. What we use as, what we say are tensions are really like the in situ decision that you have to make. So Jake talked about how we had this really qualitative work where we're, we're coding and analyzing these videos, taking notes, and we observed that oftentimes these teachers would hesitate in the classroom. You could see when they would not be certain if they should follow um, students' divergent ideas or stick more to their kind of canonical uh, goal in the discussion or, you know, where they hoped that this discourse would go. And so 
tensions really are the challenges that you face in the classroom in navigating responsive teaching, in choosing whether or not to follow student divergences or follow these, you know, all these ideas that you're opening your classroom to, or more so following, you know, kind of a, a stricter idea of your expectations for what you're going to cover in the discussion or, or in the classroom. Well, and you, you list some quotes on your poster that I think really speak to, to this question. Uh, one of the lower quotes down here, uh, a teacher reported, getting a handle on how far to let tangent, tangent questions or explorations go before shutting them down in order to redirect back to the original question was a source of like concern or trepidation. So I think that, yeah, that's a that's doesn't matter how long you've been teaching. That's a thing we ought to think about. Michael, you just read the one from Pacing and Time Constraints about uh, tangent questions, getting a handle on how far to let them go before redirecting. That's a very valid tension that you face in the classroom, whether you're trying to be responsive and follow divergent ideas or, uh, you know, sticking more to that traditional style. Students often raise their hand and ask questions that don't seem to relate to what we're talking about. But um, I think it's very important to consider that everything that's brought to the, the discussion in a classroom is brought up because the student thinks that it is related to what's being discussed. So even from the teacher level, seeing, looking at or hearing something or, or looking at a paper, seeing something a student's written, oftentimes we might think like, oh, this is so off topic, this doesn't relate. But to that student, it does. And, and it's important to make sure that they, they feel that validity. And then within that, there's the tension of, okay, how long do I let this go on? How long do we talk about this question that really I didn't expect to explore? Day. We're not saying that you have to respond to them in certain ways. We're not saying that you you must take up this tension this way in order to be responsive or, you know, if you don't follow a, diver, a student's divergent idea, then you're not being responsive to them. That's not true at all. There are many ways to be responsive in the classroom. And sometimes being responsive is going to require additional research and, and looking at some, um, you know, more resources and coming back to the the student's question or idea another day when you know a bit more about what they want to talk about and, and what they are talking about. As I, what my what I'm saying with this really is just that there are many ways to take to navigate the tensions that arise in a classroom. Or one of our goals with this research is really to highlight that these tensions are just natural to responsive teaching, not necessarily to highlight how to how to respond to the tension, but just to highlight that trying to be responsive and implementing responsive teaching into your classroom is going to inherently bring up tensions that you may not be as comfortable with if you're used to that traditional style of teaching. Sounds like a public service announcement. Like you're <laughs> on the hype train, you want to get into responsive teaching, and there's some uh, some rocky shores, and that's okay. These are some things you should look out for. When you feel them, that's normal because it's it's tough and it's different. Uh, but uh, you're you're not in crazy town. These these are some of the challenges of doing this. As you first sort of navigate the ambiguity of 
letting students have more ownership of the conversation that that can feel really weird especially as you mentioned that many i think all of these teachers were veteran teachers and so if it's different than your past experience it can sometimes be uh, a little bit uh, anxiety inducing if it's not what you're used to but then i think uh, you shared some other quotes later on of teachers as they become comfortable and more adept at navigating that ambiguous space where students are driving the conversation and we're and we're spotlighting and spotlighting uh, more divergent comments the discussions that arise are really satisfying as students pursue that more authentic uh, sense making and man that is that is the good stuff like we've talked about that before and so i want to i want to put one of those quotes on the on tape as well because uh, there's one that i liked a whole bunch in your comments about the affordances of responsive teaching uh, where there's a teacher who said i look forward to continuing the practice of doing science in a meaningful way not by giving the students the answer but by talking questioning and testing ideas to find it together and i think uh, that kind of highlights the there it's scary and it is that's we should be honest about that it, it's different and uh if we're doing it right that ambu and that ambiguity persists right we don't solve that uncertainty year over year or class over class but it's compelling right it, it, it can be a really satisfying bit of work if we can become comfortable in that uncertain space what are the specific things that you do or could recommend uh, to any of the listeners who maybe want to promote some of their own responsive teaching or offer some professional development or some advice or some recommendations to some of their colleagues? What are some of the things that are maybe the shoulds from your, your investigation? Especially for any listener who is trying to get people on board with responsive teaching is to simply just go into the research. Look at all these different articles and books that are all written on responsive teaching and the benefits that come from it, and just take that, run with it. Talk to your administration, talk to fellow teachers, talk to anyone about possibly doing one to two responsive lessons just in the beginning. Kind of feel it out. Don't think that you need to instantly like switch your entire classroom and be like, I'm only responsive, that's it, uh, I can't do anything else because that's not going to be realistic, but it doesn't have to be a constant responsiveness. Like you can do just one lesson. You can do one lesson a week, something like that, just to get yourself started and start to understand the tensions that you're going to personally feel, because they're going to be different for everyone. Start to understand those tensions and then work through them. More and more practice is going to make you more and more comfortable, but you'll, I mean, you're never going to be a hundred percent comfortable giving over your control because every year it's going to be different. Like you were saying, every class is going to be different. Every minute of every day is different. So just working to understand how you're going to respond to it and figuring out how it's going to best work in your own classroom. Yeah, I would say um, the first thing to do, I think, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you're likely a teacher who cares about what your students think um, and wants student ideas in the classroom. And so even if you wouldn't say that you are, are a responsive teacher or you've never even heard of responsive teaching maybe and you haven't tried implementing this, it's likely that you are already doing very responsive things in the classroom. Um, so I would recommend first sitting down and thinking about what ways you are responsive in the classroom already, um, whether that is just uh, providing more probing questions in the classroom and, and asking your students to really think about what they're saying. That's something that's responsive. There, there are many ways to be 
responsive in little ways in the classroom, even in that traditional style that, that I have mentioned quite a few times. Another very representative way of responsive teaching is to ask a kind of open-ended launching question in the classroom. And this is what Jake and I really observed in the videos that we've discussed in, from this professional development. The most common thing that we were looking at in responsive teaching were open-ended launch questions. So for example, a teacher might ask their science classroom something like, how do clouds form? Or what happens to puddles after it the rain stops and they all disappear. Um, you know, that would be something at, at a lower level, an elementary level likely. But but something that really gets the class engaging in this scientific discussion, or, which is where our research is in. You know, I, I'm studying mathematics, so I plan on being responsive in, in the mathematics mathematics context as well. And, and this is something that you could apply to any classroom regardless of subject. Um, I think that's really important to note, that being responsive is you know, something that you can do in, in any context, whether you're in the classroom or not. You can be a responsive teacher when you're not standing in, fr in front of everybody. And allow for sometimes those uncomfortable conversations when things are brought up that maybe other students don't understand or aren't familiar with, whether it has to do with something cultural or maybe use of vocabulary when students use um, the same words to mean different things or different words to mean the same thing. One of the tensions that I personally like to, to really think about, or, or one of the tensions I would like to explore more in future research, um, has to do with the use of vocabulary and, and students using content terminology in incorrect ways, in, in ways that aren't necessarily accurate. So one of the videos that we uh, analyzed was the, the teacher was discussing plate tectonics. In, in this video, she had used the word plate tectonics prior to defining what it meant. And so a lot of the students were using the term in a way that they thought was appropriate, but wasn't necessarily accurate. And so she ended up asking questions like, when you say plate, do you mean like a dinner plate? Um, and so sometimes being responsive can be as simple as asking your students to define what they mean so that you create more of a shared understanding in the classroom and you are able to have you know, a more developed discourse and, and discussion about whatever you may be exploring. Yeah, okay, got some things. One, uh, language usage is so important. I know that we're going to talk about that again in this episode and holding our students accountable to proper language usage is, uh, language usage is an important way to differentiate between answer-seeking behavior and sense-making behavior. Because if they just have to say the word plate tectonics and everybody says, yeah, 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 you got it, then they got the answer, They don't, but they, they can't explain what they're talking about. And that's holding students accountable to language is, is a, a super important part of, of responsive teaching, especially when you put them in the hot seat, uh, either on their own or collaboratively with their, their other students to really pin that language down. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. 
another thing that I want to say is that uh, when you were discussing um, the importance of open-ended questions, you call them launch questions, uh, though sure, you can use them as the beginning as intro, I would say you should have them throughout all of their experiences and discourses entirely. So I would just say, use open-ended questions, and I would drop the launch, because I don't want to confine them to the beginning of an experience. Uh, you gave two examples of questions. You, you said, what happens when puddles disappear? Uh, and how does a cloud form? And you said, you know, what happens to puddles dis disappear? That might be a lower level question. And what is beautiful about responsive teaching is that those two questions are like post-doctoral level questions also. What happens when a puddle disappears? You can make them get to a really complex thermodynamic kinetic explanation of that. Or you can tone that down and use whatever resolution you want. So open-ended questions, not only do they prompt more discussion amongst the students and more thoughts about how do I answer this question that can be answered in so many ways, you also have the power to respond to their answers as deeply or as shallowly as you want to in the classroom. So those open-ended questions, I find, are like the cornerstone of of that responsive teaching practice. It gives you so much control by giving up specificity. And uh, other than that, what's uh, what's what's next for both of you? Still, are you still looking for classrooms? Because FSU is producing uh, some serious teachers down there, apparently. Yeah. What's, uh, what's next for both of you? Both Caroline and I are going through our apprentice teaching in the spring, uh, this upcoming spring. And then for me, my next step is uh, dependent on where I get a job. Um, whether that be in Florida or back in Ohio, where I'm from. But I would like to start off in a middle school classroom, get some experience under my belt before going back to any sort of grad school or things like that. Um, I would love to get involved in more research if possible. Um, but right now, the future is very wide open. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, I'm pretty congruent with Jake doing my apprentice teaching at the same time spring 2019 and then we'll graduate and eventually i'd like to go to grad school i'm not really sure what i want to study yet which is why i want to be in the classroom first um and also i you know our even when we do our internship we're still going to have student assignments we have to participate in seminar on campus and those kinds of things so i really can't wait to just have a couple years in the classroom of just being a teacher, not also being a student. I mean, of course, we're lifelong learners, but uh, looking forward to, to getting in the classroom and, and getting some of that hands-on experience um, and re responsive teaching experience and, and then maybe coming back to school and, well, probably certainly coming back to school and, and uh, using that to help further my education. Sure, that's excellent. Well, I appreciate both of your time, and let me tell you, there are classrooms and job opportunities in Kansas, uh, not to mention a pretty great grad school. So if you're <laughs> if you're, if you're interested, um, I know at least one principal that listens to this show and likes to hire responsive teachers. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, thank well, you we have your time. contact you information. Been, yeah, you have been you have both been wonderful. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, this is some good work. Well done. Now we do other stuff. I was skimming my I was skimming my my research feeds is actually how I came across it 
And I recognize uh, the mastery goal structures phrase in the title because I know that mastery is something that we've talked about not too long ago on the show and something that's important to both you and me. And also there's conversations going on right now uh, because Kansas, I didn't know this, Kansas was the first state to accept socio-emotional uh, standards or expectations for uh, K-12 education. Like we were the first ones to do that. So awesome, good job, Kansas. And so uh, in that vein, I recognized socio-emotional outcomes. I was like, yeah, that's a thing that we care about. That's a thing that we wanna do better. Uh, and so I pulled it um, to take a closer look. And so- Sure, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that the socio-emotional standards that Kansas are defining is using that term the same way that these authors used that term. So uh, on the show notes, we'll put, we'll provide a link to the uh, the KSD, the Kansas Department of Education page for socio-emotional learning. But I think that you're right. They're, they're using a much broader umbrella, whereas here we'll get some very specific socio-emotional outcomes, which is the nature of research. You've got to have an operational definition. I didn't see it. It doesn't show up in the, it doesn't show up in the, in the title. And I didn't, didn't even really catch it early on in the reading, but it felt to me like the actual essence of this paper is about promoting better collaborative learning is actually the, the biggest takeaway that I had. Oh man, I there's a lot of good stuff in this paper. I really like a lot of their definition work and their parsings and their measurements. There's some really good stuff here. It's The title of this paper is The Role of In-Class Consensus on mastery goal structures in predicting socio-emotional outcomes. It's pretty vocabulary dense. And so you gotta do a little bit of translation to understand what they're really getting at here. This paper is actually about measurement. This paper is about not using survey means to draw conclusions about classrooms, but instead using survey consensus factors to draw conclusions about classrooms. That's actually what this is. It is not really about mastery learning and its efficacy. It is about how do we best measure the effects of mastery learning models. This is about measurement. I think the takeaway of the specific measurements that they did are useful. Oh yes, I, I agree with you. And so from a useful standpoint, why do I care about within class consensus? The answer to that is better consensus leads to uh, better socio-emotional outcomes and those outcomes ultimately promote more effective collaborative learning. Only if you're using consensus as the measurement and not survey means. Because when you use survey means, you don't have those findings. Well, let's get into that. <laughs> Okay, there's so much background, and this is so vocabulary rich, we gotta kind of translate it. One, they talk about mastery goal structures as compared to um, normative goal structures. So what does that mean? Well, they used workplace uh, psychological studies as a background for this. So what did that mean in, in those scenarios? Goal structures really means uh, motivation. They use the, they kind of use the word as motivation. Are we motivated from a mastery perspective, which means we are interested in effort, feedback, and personal growth? Or are we interested in a performance uh, motivation where we are trying to hit a particular benchmark or a particular comparison? And well, and, and it's not quite benchmark. As I read that particular, because that term was important. Uh, and so I had to give it a couple of reads to make sure I was fully understanding it. And the performance goal structure is about judgment. The word that I wrote was, they didn't use judgment, but I said judgment. So it's either about competitive standards or uh, surpassing normative standards. I just I want to put a, I want to I want to put an exclamation point on that because 
as I read normative standards, it's something that is put on a curve. So those standards are set against the abilities of the other students rather than relative to some sort of particular competency. And so by that mechanism, there will always be succeeders and failers. So from a performance standpoint, we are sorting students at its heart, uh, which is the antithesis of this mastery model that they're describing. Yes. There has been, and they cited, studies that have been done in workplace group environments where when the group has a consensus about what their goals are, regardless of what model it is, that group is more productive and healthy and sustainable. And so they're saying that, has, that, that hasn't been measured in a school setting. We don't know about the attitudes of students when they're in groups, when they're in classes, do they have a consensus about how the class works and what the goals are, or is it everybody scattered? And if there is or is not a consensus, does that matter toward their outcomes? Uh, and to be totally clear, they even draw another line here that uh, within group attitudes and cohesion has been has been better studied, right? We know more about how small groups work with, with, with each other. Uh, but the, the gap in the research was how does the whole class dynamic affect how students are perceiving these processes? So... To get their data, they uh, there was a prior survey that was given, and they were reanalyzing the results of their of that survey, and I believe it involved uh, about uh, fourteen hundred students. They were using questions regarding the students' understanding of the classroom motivation. Basically, was this a mastery learning model class, or was this a normative and or performance model class? <clears throat> So one example of a task question might be, in math class, we are supposed to try out different ways of learning. Uh, or an autonomy question might be, in math class, we can choose between different exercises. So uh, they were really accessible, uh, simple questions for the students, but then their underlying um, theme of those questions were related to this uh, task, autonomy, or evaluation. Yeah, uh, and I, uh, I translated in my mind evaluation to feedback task was it was it a challenging task that we actually have to learn in order to achieve autonomy autonomy do i have the, the ability to choose how i'm going to achieve this and three w am i going to get feedback that i can use to support my growth and if, feedback on what in particular so uh, evaluation or recognition were used interchangeably so is, are my points going to be highlighted or is my speed going to be highlighted or is my growth going to be highlighted so what aspect of my progress is going to be the thing that is spotlighted spotlit i don't know is that a word this is what they found when the students had a consensus that this were they were offered mastery tasks there was a positive there was a that was correlated with a positive classroom climate fewer negative error responses and an increased use of cooperative learning it was pretty great implies that we should give our students tasks that they can't already do that clean correlation was not found uh, as as robustly amongst the other comparisons when the students had a consensus that this was a classroom where they had autonomy there were fewer negative error responses and uh, there was an increased use of cooperative learning strategies but that did not contribute to a positive classroom climate with better peer relations 
And finally, when reliable feedback, there was a consensus that they would be evaluated and provided feedback, there were fewer negative error responses, but that also did not contribute to a classroom a better classroom climate with better peer relations, and it did not contribute to increased use of cooperative learning strategies. Uh, and so their paper gave some potential reasons for why the model or the data may have failed to produce those results, despite the fact that they exist. But I was uncomfortable presupposing that those results exist when they've got a pretty large data set and it didn't and it didn't come out in their models. Well, the thing is, is that those correlations did exist in workplace studies uh -huh. of the same model. So sure. the the situation is why is a classroom different than a work environment? Right. So why is yeah, so <laughs> yes, yeah. that is a question. Uh, so so why might it be different? So uh, so let's pick one. Which uh, which one do you want to start? Well, with? Uh, let's do the one with the the least uh, responses. Reliable consensus regarding evaluation and feedback does not contribute to a positive classroom climate regarding peer relations and does not contribute to increased use of cooperating lear learning strategies. Feedback does not make them like each other. Mm -hmm. Feedback does not make them work with each other. Or, or if we are all in agreement about the nature of the feedback we're yeah, going to get. Yeah, that's actually the correct you're right. That's because it's not quite the same thing, right? You're right. Like, you're absolutely right. This is about their perception as a group about the quality of their evaluation. So if we're all on the same page that we are going the same direction, regarding we need evaluation. to we need to accrue those points. We need to demonstrate that competency. We need to um, check these by like whatever it may be, good, bad, or otherwise. If we are all in agreement that we are going the same place, then we are likely to be we're more likely to be gracious in the face of mistakes because we believe that we are all going the same direction. Yes, that is true. And that is actually and true that's for like the every extent, one of them. And, right, and that's, I think that I'm comfortable with that being the extent of a conclusion in, rather than trying to find these apologetic explanations for why everything else can be true. Yeah. That's absent in a model. I think that's a fine package. If we are clear and in agreement about where we're going, we can be gracious about mistakes at the end. I think that's that is a worthy takeaway. The model also does support that when they're, we're on the same page regarding the, uh, the tasks we are given, everything is better. Mm -hmm. Get us all on the same page, they're going to be more gracious about errors, and if you give them challenging tasks or tasks that they believe are, are authentic tasks, they will work better with each other. Those are the two takeaways. If we're only looking at what is consistent, those are the two things we take away. Clear errors. expectations of tasks. Yeah. Uh, we should do that also. I'm not saying that the things you're saying are wrong, but that's not what this paper is about. And the other thing that I, the other, the other, not the discrepancy, and to be totally clear, these, these empty boxes are just failure to correlate, right? They're just, right. so it's not, you, there's no evidence to say you shouldn't do any of these. These are all either good or irrelevant in every in every box, just to be totally clear. But the other one, um, consensus on tasks and consensus on autonomy supports collaborative learning, whereas the evaluation doesn't. And basically that boils down to if we are all on the same page about what we need to do, and I believe I can make choices about how I'm going to get there, I will choose to work with others. And that's actually really refreshing news to me because um, there are some conversations that go on sometimes about how we force students to work with each other and how can I make them interact with groups when this research is supporting with a pretty robust data set that if you let students 
make decisions about how they will accomplish their learning, and they are all in agreement that they have that agency, they will choose collaborative learning on their own. Whereas if you strip away that freedom, then you lose that positive benefit. So if I'm not as sure that I can make choices, then I'm going to reduce my degrees of freedom, right? I'm going to I'm gonna have fewer sources of uncertainty so that I can navigate what I'm not sure about regarding this task and regarding my own autonomy. So I think this narrative is, again, it's, it's we don't need to find ways to loop in things that are not there in the model. If we understand the task, and I believe that I can make choices, I am likely to make choices that include other people, which yeah. is good for plenty of reasons that we already know. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's a satisfying narrative all by itself. Now, earlier you said that uh, all of these things are either good or irrelevant. But that's only true if we are making the comparison against classroom consensus. These findings are entirely based off the fact that they are measured against the classes that had a consensus versus the class that did not. Whereas if we took the measurement of the means of all of these 144 students and their survey responses, we would find no correlation between these attitudes and classroom period across the board. Group things are done as groups. So we should measure a group stat as opposed to averaging individual stats. Because when you average the individual stats, there's no correlations at all, and we would just say there is no consequence. And we would have moved on, and we would be having this as a discussion on this podcast right now. Mm -hmm. This is better with all of you. So for this month's peer review, we heard back from Dr. Odin. Uh, he listened to the episode uh, last month where we were talking about sense-making. He was the, the lead author on that on that subject. And he actually recommended a couple more uh, references. So uh, he said, to follow up on the conversation, I just wanted to share a couple of very short articles on answer-making versus sense-making in case you or your listeners might be interested in reading something more on the subject. Uh, both are from the physics teacher uh, and so are more practitioner-oriented than my paper, and they go into more detail on things to do in the classroom to move the focus from answer-making to sense-making. Uh, and so we went ahead and read those papers, and uh, we want to we take a look at uh, how we can maybe get a little bit more concrete shoulds and implementation on that sense-making conversation. The first one I read was uh, titled Whiteboarding, a tool for moving classroom discourse from answer-making to sense-making. Uh, by Colleen Megowin Romanowitz. Uh, and it is uh, a synthesis piece that also has um, personal anecdotes and reflection. Uh, and it is a, a quick, gentle read about her stories. She had uh, many years of experience, and then she went to a professional development, and she got some new strategies. She came back to her classroom, and uh, she has not gone back. It's totally changed how she does her classroom, and she's really excited. And it basically just involves a classroom tool that many of us may be familiar with already, just simple whiteboarding for the classroom. Application questions where relationships need to be drawn are good starting points for effective whiteboard questions. And elaborate on that idea was actually what I perceived the content of the other paper Dr. Odin shared with us uh, to really be about. So it comes from a university um, 
uh, professor who was talking about his experiences in trying to pursue sense making uh, when he taught this course about 10 years ago and then renewing his responsibility for that course here in the present time. And uh, I think he pointed out a couple of really important things. Number one, uh, he said, it seems like it's taking a lot longer for me to get my classes to a place where they are generally all pursuing these sense-making behaviors. He said, uh, you know, in the past it took me, you know, as much as six weeks for my students to get on get on board with these this pursuit of sense-making. And now it's taking even longer than that. I think that's an important thing to internalize for us as instructors is this is not something that gets built over the course of a day or a week or even a month. We have to invest in this for a long time to become reliable feedback givers uh, from the standpoint that students believe that they're going to be safe in pursuing sense making that's going to be prioritized and valued in what they're doing. I didn't like any of that. Oh, did we do How Was the Beer? That's what's next. Oh, I, I yeah. shut down. I guess I didn't have any beer notes. I drank it all. Yeah, How, how Was the Beer? <laughs> um, uh, it was good. It's. I have a complaint, but it's such a minor complaint that it's almost like not worth saying. I'm going to say it because that's what I do with complaints and critiques as I say them. Uh, it's slightly more bitter than I would like, but I would still drink a ton of this. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I was an avid Warsteiner, the, the, the typical yellow uh, drinker when I was younger, and so I'm familiar with the general notes of, because uh, this, I think, has a lot in common with their more typical um, lager that they create. I just, I don't love Dunkles in general, I think. The, this has a lot in common with the Dunkel from KC Beer that we drank a long time ago, and I just... I think I like this more than the KC Dunkel, oh, yeah. if my memory is serving me correctly, but it might not be. It was a long time ago. Well, that's it for this month. We are super excited to share our season ender. We have a big finale coming up that we're gonna release here in just a couple of weeks, and so we're excited to share that with you soon. It's been on, the, we've been on the air for a whole year. I can't believe it. We've been taping a little longer than that, and so uh, hopefully we're a little better now than when we started. Uh, so if you haven't subscribed to us yet, hop on over to iTunes or the Google Podcast or Stitcher or Podbean or all of the other places you can subscribe to make sure that you get our monthly release and the special finale episode coming up here off schedule here pretty soon. Uh, so till next time, discuss research and struggle well. <laughs>